What I want to preach on today are all three readings in a kind of jumbled order. The Gospel first, Exodus next, and then Philippians. And sort of the, the process of the sermon has to do with the predicate that the parable sets up uh, about God's unconditional acceptance, love, and forgiveness and its importance and why I preach about it all the time and uh, what's involved in terms of our response. The reading from Exodus is a classic reading about how uh, all of us seek the quick fix. And in, in positions of leadership, it's a very easy thing to do. And uh, it's also about how Moses exercises a mediatorial role between God and the people of Israel, and how you and I may have some a role in doing that as we live and understand uh, what's involved with all of that. And finally, in Philippians, there is some, some statements by Paul about ways of being and living and what our focus should be that I think are character-building ideas and maybe uh, are very helpful in anxious times. And so Paul in Philippians is speaking to the congregation about what may be some difficulties and uh, how we should sort of uh, adjust our attitude when we go through this. The reading from Matthew is a perfect example of why it's important, consistent with your circumstances and interest, I suspect, uh, to be a student of the Bible. Because today, we actually have two parables that have been put together. They're separate. And they are put together because Matthew puts them together for a particular purpose that meets the pastoral needs of his own community and the situation on the ground. Uh, the story is about, or that Jesus tells the parable, is about uh, a king who was going to have a wedding feast and he invited all of the prominent people to come to the wedding feast and they had absolutely no interest in it. And they didn't come. And so he proactively sent people out to get and encourage people to come to the wedding feast. And it was still no go. And so he decided he was going to invite everybody to the wedding feast. And that everybody comes in. And some of these people are of lesser prestige than the ones who had been invited in the first place. And here's the beginning of the of the why it's important to do a little reading about this. Matthew was writing his gospel after a very important historical event, and that was the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. In fact, the destruction of the city by the Romans. And so he was thinking, you know, here's a situation where something has occurred, an historical cataclysm. And it might have something to do about how we have thought about God's purposes and how we have understood our own responsibilities and who this message is for. I've said this a lot lately. Matthew is the, was a rabbi in a Jewish Christian synagogue that had become 80% Gentile. And he had concluded that the, his own people, the people of the covenant, had rejected this message. And now it's given to being given to somebody else. Or at the very least, 
those who have come in accept the message, and it's a bitter pill to swallow when we see that the people for whom he had believed, at least it was for, have rejected it. And yet at the same time, we understand something about God's purposes because we understand that God unconditionally loves, accepts, and forgives us. But here's the unusual thing and why, if some of you were listening to this, wondered what in the world this thing on the end is, which is the second parable. And that is that a guy goes to a wedding feast and he doesn't have the proper garment on. And you know, for a, uh, a, a religious outlook like Anglicanism that believes in salvation by haberdashery, <laughs> this is a bitter pill. <laughs> <laughs> All right? But following on the other parable, everybody was invited. Presumably, they didn't have the wedding garments. They didn't have anything. It's a story about God's inclusiveness. Why in the world would we now have a situation where somebody without a wedding garment gets thrown out? Well, maybe Matthew is, is saying in, to his own community, you know, we got 80% Gentiles in here. We believe that God's gracious welcome is being offered to everyone now. What is our response to be? In other words, if we've been freely accepted, we have to accept. And in some way, it involves understanding uh, kind of internal, emotional, spiritual, and mental processes whereby we come to understand what our response to the divine initiative should be in our lives, you know. Life is not just a continuous float down a stream of grace. It has something to do with uh, developing some sort of an internal understanding of what we're supposed to do. How then should we live? And so with many privileges come certain responsibilities. And so this may be a kind of harsh uh, story, deliberately harsh. He exaggerates. Jesus' parables are full of this kind of hyperbole uh, about the need that you and I have to determine on a regular basis what our response to the divine initiative is going to be and an acknowledgement we, that we have received this unconditional free gift but somehow it calls us to do something, to respond. And discovering what that might be is both a personal, individual process and it's a community process where people discern together. I suspect this is true for all institutional life outside, uh, outside any religious perspective particularly, that this is an important thing that we should consider. In the book of Exodus, we have a famous story, uh, and it's this. Moses, it's sort of a flat, Moses has gone up the mountain to get the Ten Commandments, and he's up there, and he's sort of incommunicado. And everybody's going, we don't know where, he might be a nice guy, we don't know where Moses is now, we're out here, we're leaderless, or there's no whatever, what are we going to do, how are we going to live? We need to have some assurance of God's presence. So they pester Aaron. They're on him all the time. Lots of pushback. He finally says, okay, give me your gold rings. I'll melt them down. We'll make a calf. 
and here's what we'll do. I suspect if we knew enough about the biblical archaeology, we would see that in, this, in the travels in the wilderness, uh, the people of Israel came into contact with the various groups that I spoke about last week and began to say, let's build a golden calf, let's do this stuff, let's, you know, we need to have some. We don't know whether Moses is coming back. We need to know that God is present. Of course, Moses is bringing back the assurance, the Ten Commandments and the other things. He's going to come back with them. But Aaron has just said, I can't do this anymore. This is about uh, the quick fix. And this is about what people in leadership are always faced with when you get pestered. You either have to have the ability to withstand this or you cave. And sometimes when you cave, you're not able to do the necessary work in order to move people in a direction of greater strength. Because this means, of course, that the people of Israel are still focused backward and not forward. They're focused on the place of remembered good times and not on the place where they receive a new self-understanding, a deeper and fuller uh, knowledge of God's purposes for them and a way to proceed. So what happens in the course of this is that God becomes very angry and God's intention is to destroy the people of Israel. This is the unhappy uh, part of reading the Hebrew Bible often. We're ready for uh, a, a, you know, a divine ethnic cleansing, which is often what you get. And Moses comes back, of course, and he intercedes on behalf of the people. And he pleads with God not to destroy them. Early Christians, people like Matthew, are going to look back on this story and see that they have a type in their own history of Jesus. And that is the mediatorial role that Moses plays in his standing between them and God and bringing things now to a, a conclusion where God relents and continues to be faithful and abide with them as they move forward. And so people who know that story are going to see and hear Jesus and many of them are going to say, you know what? He represents now the unique focus of this mediatorial role in our lives. And that's how we understand it. I think the lesson from the reading, of course, is that uh, golden calves are not uh, a thing of the past. We don't all have, I mean, make golden calves, but we all have stuff that we need to worship to assure us of the presence we uh, have a lot of stuff. Uh, we think we need a lot of stuff. We live in a culture that tells us we have to have a lot of stuff. We're kind of on the horns of the dilemma, aren't we? Because if we were all to decide, even in this room, that tomorrow we are going to live a life of complete renunciation, like Francis of Assisi, who's going to buy the stuff? What are we going to do with all the stuff, you know? But maybe another way to think about that is, rather than think in radical terms, maybe we ought to think about right relationship. And you'll see that uh, the reason we have four Gospels, for example, is that um, some of the other Gospel writers talk about the, the need for right relationship with our things, not that we give them up. Luke is perhaps the most important, our own patron 
in this regard, more passages in his gospel about economic justice and equity and how you use your resources than any other gospel writer. He is very interested in those things and concerned about them. So this is, of course, about the fact that we believe that there are a lot of things that we can use to fill the hole that is only fillable by God and the Spirit of God. It also, for people in leadership, which is everybody in big and small ways, it's learning how to remain non-anxious in the faith, face of that kind of reactivity by people, you know. You notice it too, haven't you, when the boss goes away or there's on vacation or there's something like that? Uh, the extreme form of it is kill the king, you know. Or why is he, in, why is he on the Amalfi Coast, you know. <laughs> Things are going to hell in a handbasket here. We got, there's no leadership, right? So people start in about what it is we got to do in order to get rid of this or to fix it. And there's all kinds of quick fix uh, solutions that are proposed, you know. We have this in our common life together in politics. We have it uh, in corporate life. We have it in just about every, in families, the quick fix, you know. Now, I don't know about you, but the quick fix is very appealing under certain circumstances. If I am in a lot of physical pain, I am prepared to take all my money out of the bank and give it to the doctor and say, take this away now. Well, I might have to cut three of your fingers off your left hand. I don't care. Do it. I got it. I just can't stand it anymore. Right? So this is real easy to say and hard to do. But it's a, it's a biblical reading about the necessity to do that, to exercise that kind of leadership. And even Aaron knows that he erred. But he just simply couldn't withstand uh, this. This kind of resistance can sometimes grind people down. In Philippians, we have maybe some solutions in terms of our interior emotional, spiritual, and mental states. What is it that we should cultivate? Habits of being and relating that help us as we live. And it affords the opportunity to say some things about Paul and his letters that are, that's in, that are important to remember, too. Uh, two women in leadership. This is one of the locations, Iodia and Syntyche. And they're in, uh, leaders in the Philip. I was going to say the Philippine congregation. <laughs> Stephen Scarcia at Neshota House when I was a student got up to read the epistle at Evensong one night and read from Paul's letter to the Filipinos. <laughs> you know, so that's like Jeffrey Barnes. He read the reading from the gospel one day about two weeks before that and talked about a controversy between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. <laughs> and he went to Harvard. <laughs> They're having, I guess, uh, as my grandmother would say, dear, there's tension between Iodia and Syntyche. And Paul is uh, saying you need to kind of get this, you need to get along together and here are the things uh, that I'm going to suggest or say to you. And one of the great lines in the New Testament, uh, finally, beloved, whatever is true, Whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing, 
whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, and if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Now, where did Paul get this? Did he just sort of, through prayer and meditation, come up with this list of, of ways to be and act? Well, he came up with it from lists that were in existence in the ancient Near East when he was alive that came, in this case, from Greek Stoic philosophy. This is a list of what you should do in order to be able to meet the opportunities and the challenges in front of you on a regular basis. I think the Germans in biblical scholarship, as I remember, they'd always have these italicized. These lists were called house tough, house lists. So uh, there were a lot of them. Now somebody would say, well, that, gee, that's kind of debunked. You mean these aren't Christian values? Sure they are. Because they reflect the highest and best of how human beings should behave and what they ought to do. And whenever you see that operating, you see the purposes of God at work. Whatever is honorable, when you behave in an honorable fashion, when you behave in a just way, whenever you are uh, pleasing in the sense that you uh, operate on a, without prejudice in your, in your interac interactions. That's a good thing. If you pursue excellence, all of those things are important to do. And Paul commends them to that community. And remember this, the Philippian community was probably one of the healthiest churches that he founded in terms of their interaction with one another, in terms of their generosity to the other churches that Paul had founded in Asia Minor. And remember, Philippi was not in some backwater, you know, hick place. It was a city. Christianity began, Pauline Christianity certainly, as an urban movement. So don't think about this as some sort of country bumpkin simple thing. It was people in urban life and he, these churches were created in that particular situation. And he says to some people who do pretty well by and large, they need to focus on some of these things and their common life will be improved. I suspect that if we work to cultivate these habits of character in our own lives, the other two things that were talked about earlier uh, in the other readings may be taken care of a little bit more easily. We may understand our responsibilities in terms of accepting the free offer of God's unconditional love, acceptance, and forgiveness. We may be able to find the internal resources we need to be able to meet uh, the resistance and the reactivity whenever we're in positions of leadership and uh, seek to move people in a healthier direction. And finally, we learn some things about what it means to be a decent human being. And I think that's really what the Christian faith in life is about, in large part. Amen. Amen. Amen.